Father, in these days, uh, we are very much aware of the fact that uh, there is disease and sickness in this world. And Lord, it affects all of us because of sin, Lord, because of the sin in our father Adam and, and the sin that we have committed. Lord, that you had said that death would come, that physical ailment would come as a result. And so we are suffering uh, those things these days. But we also recognize, Lord, that you use our sickness for good. And I pray, Lord, uh, especially for the families in our church that are undergoing um, many trials as far as their health, and pray especially for the Hernandez family and for Andrea, Lord, that you would heal her, give her strength, and, Lord, that uh, you would bring comfort as well uh, to the whole family, Lord, as we know when when mom is sick, it just impacts the entire home. So we just want to lift them up to you now. And thank you for their faithful love and care and service to this church. Just please bless them now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, to say that we are living in unique days would be quite an understatement, right? It was just 10 days ago when uh, Governor Newsom announced that California would be the first state to go under a uh, what the mandatory stay-at-home restrictions. Now, 10 days ago, it actually seems like a lot longer than that, doesn't it? Uh, it seems like a lot longer than that to me, just a week and a half. Uh, for some of you, probably it seemed like an eternity, especially for those of you with kids in the home. In fact, I've had a chance over the last week and a half to call a number of uh, our young families and just see how they're doing, ask for prayer requests. And for most of them, the first prayer request they bring up is that they wouldn't strangle their kids. And so just, I, we know it's a challenge. It's a challenge just living with any other person uh, for a period of time and then especially being cooped up together 24-7 makes it especially difficult. Certainly these circumstances can, can bring about challenges. And I understand that. But they also can create opportunity. They also can bring about opportunity. I remember, oh, it was 10 or 15 years ago, Pastor John Piper was preaching a sermon not long after he was diagnosed with cancer. And he said in that sermon a line I'll never forget. He said, don't waste your cancer. And I thought it was so appropriate and so helpful. He was saying, don't waste the opportunity that God is bringing in your life, even if it is something as serious And life-threatening is cancer. And I think we could say the same thing in this hour. Don't waste your quarantine. Don't waste this time that God has given. Certainly we are in a difficult trial. A difficult trial as a nation, as a planet, as a community, as a church, and even within our homes. But it is not a trial without purpose. It is not a trial that we should waste. And today I want to draw our attention to Psalm 127. It's a psalm that I think will help us not waste this quarantine. It is a psalm that will show us how we can thrive even in the midst of the circumstances within our homes and be blessed within our homes, even given all that is going on. So please turn with me to Psalm 127, which will show us this morning that to raise your home, you must rely on God. To raise a home, you must rely on God. Let's look together at Psalm 127. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Well, the title of this short poem tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us that Solomon is the author of this psalm. And secondly, it tells us that Solomon intended for this psalm to be a song of of ascent. Uh, these are a group of psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, a group of psalms that were specifically written for the people of Israel as they would come up to Jerusalem during one of the three annual feasts, during the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Booths. And, and these songs were intended to be sung uh, together as these caravans would be traveling from all over Israel to go to Jerusalem. 
And right in the middle of these songs of ascents are, are two psalms which are focused on family, focused on the home. And if you want to picture that scene as people would be coming to Jerusalem during one of these feasts, there'd be whole families and groups of families together in these caravans that would be singing these particular psalms. And in Psalm 127, they would be singing about a valuable principle that really provides the foundation for any Christian home. And when I say home, I mean any home, not just homes with uh, husband, wife, and children, but, but any home where you live. And the theme of this psalm is again this, to raise a home, rely on God. Now Solomon makes this point in two stanzas here. The first stanza is in verses 1 and 2, and the second stanza in verses 3 through 5. And the first stanza tells us this, to rely, uh, to, to raise a home, you must rely on God by remembering, firstly this, that God is your provider in life. And then the second stanza says to, to uh, rely on God, to build your home, you must also remember that God is the provider of children. God is the provider in life, and He's the provider of children. So let's look at the first stanza again at this poem. God is your provider in life. Look at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Notice here, Solomon begins this poem by drawing our attention to the building or the raising of a house. And by house here, he's not speaking merely of the physical structure or the place in which you live. Building a house in Solomon's mind here, in his heart he's talking about, is is involving all that is required to maintain or to live a particular way of life. It's important to see here this first stanza speaks to everyone. It speaks to those who are married and to those who are single. It speaks to those who have children and those who do not. It speaks to the young. It speaks to the old. It's speaking to all of us. For we are all building a home. We all have a house. Again, not just a place where we find shelter, the place in which we live, but the way in which we live, how we are building a way of life. And so Solomon is saying here that that if God is not building your house, if he is not the center of your life, then your labor, your effort, all of that is vain, which means useless, worthless, without value. You might as well give up is the idea. And this brings us to an important question. What does it mean practically for God to be building our house? Well, it means first that we are completely dependent upon Him in life. It means that we look to Him for strength, for wisdom, for instruction, for direction, for purpose in all that we do. It means that the the goals in building your life are the same as God's goals for our life. It means that you understand that all that you do in this life is to be for His honor and glory. To be building a house for God to be building the house means that He comes first in all your activities, in all your pursuits. And so the question we all need to consider this morning is this. Is God building your house? Is He building your house? Now for that to be the case, firstly, He must be in your house. He must be in your life. And so I I don't want to presume that everyone that is uh, watching right now, that is participating in this live stream, I don't want to assume that that everyone has a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to assume that God is in your house. Firstly, and first and foremost, you must ask yourself the question, is He in my house? Is He in my life? The Bible says that there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. The name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that tells us that that God is not in our house. He's not in our life until we recognize that we are a sinner in need of a Savior. Until we recognize that we need to confess that sin. To put our trust in Jesus Christ alone. To seek His forgiveness. To believe and trust in His death on the cross as the only payment for our sin. To commit to turn away from that sin and put our trust in in Him, to have faith in Him and Him alone. If you confess with your mouth, the Bible says that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Another way to say that is He will come into your house. He will come into your life. But He must be invited. So give your allegiance to Him. Commit your life 
to him. Trust in the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. A work that was proven to be valid, to be accepted by the fact that he was raised from the dead. Now, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have made that commitment, we still need to go back to that question. God may be in your house, but is he building your house? Is he at the center of your life? Is the Bible in your house? And I don't just mean do you have a Bible sitting on a table or a bookshelf somewhere, but how often do you spend time in the Word for yourself and and with those that you live with? How often do you talk about Scripture with those who are in your home? And this goes again, whether you're single or married. Do you have a, a roommate? Do you talk about the Scriptures with them? Do you build habits with your, those that you live with that will carry over into your future family? Is there prayer in your house? And I'm not just talking about prayer before having a meal together. That is helpful and important. But is there prayer going on in your home? Is there spiritual conversation going on in your house? In your daily life? Around your family? Co-workers, friends, roommates. Is there obedience in your house? That is, is there a commitment to following Christ as characterized by how you behave in the place in which you live? How you behave in life? Can it be characterized as a pursuit of holiness? These are the ways that, that would show that God is in your house, that He is the one building your house, building your life. These are the ways that God raises your home. Again, God is building your house when the chief concerns in your home, in your life, match God's concerns. When you prioritize your time, your energy, your decisions, your efforts, when you prioritize, prioritize those things around Him. Parents, God is building your house when the condition of your child's soul is more important to you than what college or university they are accepted into. When your children's sin burdens you more than low grades or a poor effort in some particular sport. God is building your house, parents, when your child's relationships, relationship with Christ matters more to you than who they marry or how successful they have become. Job understood this. He's a great example for us in this. In Job 1.5, it says this about Job. When the days of his children's feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Here's the example of a man who built his home By fearing the Lord. His chief concern was the souls of his children. That they had spent time together. And he's always concerned. Had they done something wrong? And so he would would pray on their behalf. He would offer a sacrifice on their behalf. You see, he recognized that if God was not the central focus in his home, then all his possessions, all of his wealth, all of his successes, all of his achievements would be worthless and vain. So again, let me ask you, what is the central focus of your home? Notice the second half of verse 1. It says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Solomon is saying here that not only is God to be the builder of the home, he is also its protector. Unless the Lord guards the city, it is not safe. And while we are certainly grateful for the police who protect us, for the sacrifices that they make to ensure our safety, they are not ultimately the ones who control the crime rate in this city. Because if God is not guarding the city, if He's not guarding our homes, it doesn't matter how many police officers there are, how good they are. It doesn't matter how long they work, how many hours they put in. If God is not guarding, we are not safe. Now, this doesn't mean we should not have a police force. That's not what Solomon is saying here. His point here is to focus our attention on what or who we should ultimately be depending upon. Who really is our protector? Who should get the ultimate credit for our safety? For if God removed his hand from protecting our society, can you imagine the chaos and the carnage? I mean, imagine even in these days. With all that is going on, if there were, were not those who were, who were commissioned to protect the communities, what would be happening in our world? 
How much do you thank the Lord for his protection? How much do you thank him for using those in our lives to protect us? And we need to remember this. We need to remember that while the police are used by God to protect us from the seen enemy, they cannot protect us from the unseen enemy. And by that, I'm not talking about a virus. As dangerous as a particular diseases and viruses are, there is an enemy, an unseen enemy, far more dangerous. Because he can do damage to our eternal soul, not just our physical bodies. Satan and his demons have as their mission to destroy our homes, to destroy your home, to draw away your children, to diminish your impact for God in this community. Peter tells us, remember, how does he describe Satan as a a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour? Now, remember, when lions roar, that means one thing. That means they are hungry. That means they are looking for something to eat. And who is it that they want to consume? Who is it that Satan is prowling about looking to devour? That someone is you. That someone is your spouse. That someone is your children. That someone is your roommate. That someone is your parents. That someone is your sibling. That someone is all of us. I still remember, it's probably 10 or 15 years ago, there was a mountain lion roaming in uh, Sunland. I think up by the old sizzler there, or Ralph's. And I remember that very vividly because nobody was out in the streets wandering around that day by that area. Everybody was acutely aware that there was this mountain lion that was... And why he went to Sizzler, I'm not sure. But, but knowing that Satan, he's a far more dangerous lion. Knowing that he is roaming about. Knowing that he is hungry. He is seeking someone to devour. Should that not heighten our senses about his presence in this world? And should it not move us to rely more on God? rather than less. It should affect the time that we spend in the Word. It should affect the time that we spend in prayer. It should affect how we live. It should affect what we prioritize in this life. It should affect how we prepare our children to go out in this world. I am certain that day when news went out about this mountain lion that was roaming the streets of Sunland, that parents weren't saying, you know, hey, just go out, have a good time. Ride your bike, ride your skateboard. It's fine. No problems, no worries. I am certain parents were keeping their children home while that was going on. How are we doing as far as our sensitivity to the fact there is a much more dangerous line roaming about? Are we making our kids aware? Are we helping them to understand? How involved are you in the spiritual lives of your kids? We must rely on God, not only to build our home, but also to protect it. Are you relying on Him in your life? Just take a moment to carefully consider that. Is He truly building your house? There's another aspect here that Solomon focuses upon and we see it in verse 2. Are you eating the bread of vain labor? Really is a question that we could ask ourselves from from this particular verse. Look there with me again at verse 2. It is vain for you, Solomon says, to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Solomon is saying, again, a very important point. He's saying here, look, to to anyone, anyone who's leaving the Lord out of their endeavors, to anyone who's trying to build your house, to build your life on your own without God, to those who don't rely on Him, Life is, your life is vain. Again, worthless. You get up early. You, you stay up late. You, you work. You toil day after day. Night after night, Solomon says, slaving to build your home, slaving to build your life. But if God's not a part of it, if he's not at the center of it, then all of that effort, all of that work, all of that struggle, all of that lost sleep, Solomon says, is pointless, useless, worthless. Because if you're too busy to spend time with God, it's not just that you're too busy. Solomon's saying all the effort that you've put into whatever it is you're pursuing in life, whether it's a job, your schoolwork, yard work, housework, your business, it's empty. If you're not praying consistently, all of your labor is useless. It will have no significance in eternity. 
If you aren't meditating upon God's word consistently, where is the value? Solomon is saying in what you do. If you're too busy to spend time with God's people, too busy to serve the Lord in that capacity, what are you really investing in with your life? What are you really building? If you're too busy to invest yourself and your family spiritually, consistently, then your work is really empty toil. Solomon here is not condemning hard work, right? In fact, he wrote a number of Proverbs that that extolled the importance of working hard. But what he's saying here in this psalm is not the amount of effort that you apply in your work, but who it is you ultimately rely upon in that work. Is it yourself or the Lord? And there's an interesting wordplay that Solomon employs here in verse 2. And if we were able to look at the original Hebrew, we would see he contrasts the first word in the verse from the last word in the verse. There are two words that sound very similar to one another. The the first word in verse 2 that he mentions is sawah. It's translated vain. And the last word of verse 2 is sena, or the word for sleep. Now, these words do sound a little bit alike, but they're also spelled very much alike, very similar. Just the middle letter letter is slightly different. And I think Solomon is doing this on purpose. He's contrasting vain and sleep in this passage at the beginning and the end of the verse in order to, to contrast the person whose life is vain and the person whose life is full of contentment and peace. In fact, that last line in verse 2 can literally be translated, he gives to his beloved sleep. You see, labor apart from God is empty. Again, useless, burdensome, unsatisfying, difficult, hard. But when one depends upon the Lord in that labor, even though it may be physically hard, that person will be at peace in his soul. He gives to his beloved sleep. He will sleep at night. She will sleep at night. She will experience God's contentment no matter what comes. Let me ask you, are you content with what you have? You know, in these days with the stock market taking a deep dive, it's a great temptation to look at your portfolio or to look at your bank account or to be concerned, especially if if for some of you, as I've been talking with this last week, have actually lost their jobs. This is an opportunity to see it. Have you put your trust and your hope in that? Are you content with what you have? If so, that's a sign that the Lord is building your house. But if you're anxious, if you're stressed, if you're full of worry, if you find yourself having trouble sleeping, if you're enjoying little from what you have, then it is likely that you are trying to build your home. Again, is your joy based upon the balance of your retirement account? If so, you are eating the bread of painful labor and you will never be satisfied. You know, I still remember J. Paul Getty. He was uh, the richest man in the world in the 60s. I think his present day worth would be over $20 billion, something like that. But he was asked this question toward the end of his life, how much money is enough? And you know what he said? Just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. And he's like that guy that that, uh, Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 12. The the one who was building all these big barns and accumulating all this wealth for himself so that he wouldn't have to worry. And then the Lord records these words in this parable. I will say to my soul, soul, this is the man, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will have what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This guy, he spends all his effort, all of his energy, all of his time to build up his his bank account. And God says, you fool, you're not going to bring that with you. All that work that you performed to store up treasure will do nothing for your soul. Indeed, you can't take it with you. I once saw a t-shirt. On the front of the t-shirt, it had that well-known phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. Remember, that was also a bumper sticker. On the back of his shirt as he walked by, it said this, but he dies nonetheless. And that's true. That's really true. The final responsibility for the building of your home, for the building of your life, rests upon God and is not dependent upon you. It should not be. 
Work hard as for the Lord, leave the results to Him, and in doing so you will be content, not because of what you gain in your labor, but because of who you depend on in that labor. And so verses 1 and 2 tell us, to raise a home, we must rely on God by remembering God is your provider in life. So don't eat the bread of vain labor. Let's turn our attention to the second stanza, which tells us this. It's in verses 3 to 5. It tells us to, to raise a home, we must rely on God by remembering God is your provider of children. The psalm takes an interesting turn here. Look again with me at verse 3. Behold, that's a word of exclamation. Solomon is making a turn here and he wants to draw our attention to what he's about to say. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is a man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Again, he begins with an emotional explanation. Behold, stop, listen, pause. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Having just sung about God as the builder and protector of the home, he now turns his attention to one way that God does that, one way that he provides and builds, and that is to provide children. And note here he describes children in three ways, as a gift, as an arrow, and as a blessing. The first description is found in verse 3. Take a look again with me there. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord, The fruit of the womb is a reward. That second line I always read slowly because I'm afraid of saying fruit of the loom. But I won't go there, otherwise my message will be very brief. Now, I can't hear all of you, but I know you're just laughing hysterically at that in your homes. Anyway, verse 3 proclaims that God's sovereignty over our homes is ultimately expressed in the fact that He's the one who provides its occupants. Children are described here as a gift or a heritage from the Lord. They're they're an inheritance, which means this. They are given, not earned. In the second line, they're described similarly as a reward. But the the reward is not in the sense of a gift. It's not in the sense of something we have have earned or merited. In fact, the emphasis of verse 3 is that ultimately God provides children despite any human effort. And so when, when your child comes up to you and asks that dreaded question, dads, where, where do babies come from? Let me give you something. You don't need to tell them to go ask their mother, all right? You can give them a very good, strong, biblical answer. You can just tell them babies come from God. It's biblical. It's correct. It gets you off the hook. And then you could add this, you know, kid, if you want any details, go ask your mom. But seriously, it is God who ultimately makes babies, Right? There are certain things at a human level that take place, but at the end of the day, children come not from our own efforts, but from God himself. Hannah is the ultimate expression of this truth. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that the Lord had, had closed her womb, and, and she was burdened with this. She was taunted by this by her husband's other wife, and she went to the temple, and she asked God for a child. She pours out her heart to the Lord, and 1 Samuel one nineteen said this, after she had done that, She went home. It says, Elkanah, her husband, had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. And then in the very next chapter, it says that God provided Hannah with three sons and two daughters. You see, how did Hannah become pregnant? Because God willed it so. God says in Deuteronomy 32, 39, it is I who put to death, and it is I who give life. And we can think of many other examples in Scripture besides Hannah. There's Abraham and Sarah. There's Elizabeth and Zacharias. Couples who could not conceive until the Lord provided a child, and in those cases, in their old age. Now, do you think those are the only times that God got involved in the conception process? No, of course not. That's the point of Psalm 127 here. Verse 3 says, all children are a gift from God. All children come from His hand. All children are given by Him. Now, that's an important truth, and I want us to step back a minute and consider the implications of that. One implication is that, that children are a gift of or from the Lord. That means they're His children. They're not your kids. They're His, ultimately. You don't own them. In fact, Ezekiel 18 says, Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son. And so the children in your home are given to you as a stewardship 
from God. That means that, that you as parents answer to God and how faithful you are in raising the children He has given to you. And secondly, if God is the one alone who gives children, then you need to be content with however many children He has given you. It may be few, it may be many. It's up to Him. You know, Hannah, she was tormented by not having children. It says in 1 Samuel 1 that it just it, it weighed heavy upon her soul. But you know, after she went to the temple that day and she cried out before the Lord, she gave it to Him in prayer, she went, at home, she went home at peace, trusting the Lord for what He would decide to do. And so remember that any inability not to have children or to have children, does not necessarily reflect on your spiritual maturity. It's not a certain sign of God's displeasure or of His punishment. That was the mentality in the ancient Near East, but that is certainly not true. There are many reasons God may, not, may have for not giving you children, not giving you many children. At times it might be a consequence, but usually it is not. And remember, not being able to conceive a child yourself does not mean you cannot have children. Not every child comes from a parent, but every child certainly goes through one. There are many, many, many children who are in need of a home, either through foster care, through adoption. Again, you don't have to give birth to a child to be able to influence a child for the kingdom. Amen? In fact, have you considered that perhaps if you do have difficulty having children, if you know someone who is having difficulty in conceiving children on their own, on their own, perhaps there is an abused, mistreated, or neglected child that already is here that God intends for you to bring in them into your home to see the love of Christ lived out. You see, God's gift of children comes in many different ways. A third implication of this verse, verse 3, is that since God is the one who is the provider of children, He has given you the specific children that you have. He's the one who has determined which child will be provided for you with all of his or her strengths, weaknesses, personality, all of that. God has determined this is the best child for you. Your child may not be smart or good-looking or athletic or popular or successful, or talented. God may have given you a child with a disability, perhaps even a severe one. You know, I remember when uh, our youngest daughter, Bree, she was about five years old, four or five years old, something like that. She was, uh, um, we were, they were playing on a trampoline. A neighborhood kid had come over, this young kid, and he, he had come over, and as they were on this trampoline, he had never seen someone with a physical disability. And he's looking at her, and he, and he looks up at us, and he says, what is that? And immediately, my little girl said, well, God made me this way, and he doesn't make mistakes. Rather profound theology for a five-year-old. We would do well to learn from this gift. Let's move on to the second description of children here. Not only does Solomon describe them as gifts, as ones that God has provided, but secondly, he describes, he compares children as arrows. Look at verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Now this is an interesting word picture in describing children. Arrows were a very important weapon in Solomon's day. They gave warriors a distinct advantage because they could inflict damage even from a distance. Now I have to confess myself, I've only used a bow a few times in my life. In fact, the only thing I've hunted with a bow is a large picture of a bear taped to a bale of hay. But I do know from my vast experience that it is the effectiveness of the archer is dependent upon the quality of the arrow, but also in his skill in shooting that arrow. I love this description by Puritan George Swinnock when he gives this insight. He says, we know that that sticks are not by nature arrows. They do not grow so, but they are made so. By nature, they are knotty. They are rugged. But by art, they are made smooth and handsome. So children by nature are rugged and immature. He's right. When that little arrow is born, he or she comes with a sin nature. The Bible says all of us have that, that we're all sinners. And and God has given you that bent, rugged stick with, with knots in it so that you can be used by him to straighten it out, to smooth it out, 
to train it, to make it an effective arrow. And to do that, parents, you need to recognize this, that your primary task is not giving your kids a home or keeping them out of trouble. Your main objective is not just to provide them, is not to provide a safe environment, a college education, or to make sure they do well in sports or music or clubs or plays or whatever. Your first duty as a father, your first duty as a mother is not their health or their education or even their morality or to make sure they marry well. These things are important. They're good things, but they're not the most important thing. In fact, Moses gives parents their priorities in Deuteronomy 4, 6, 4 through 9. I know that you are familiar with this text, many of you, but if you could turn there for a moment. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, verses 4 to 9. This is a Moses delivering a message to the people in the plains of Moab before they were about to enter the land, the second generation of Jews after the Exodus. And he says these words after reciting the Ten Commandments. He says this in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Then he says, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Here, Moses shows us how to smooth our rugged arrows, our sticks that are bent and rough. And he says to do that, we need to be faithfully teaching our children the word of God. Parenting, he says uh, here, parents are to teach them diligently. It's a word that literally means repeat. We are to repeat what the scripture says about who God is, about what he has done, about who we are, what, what God requires from us. And listen, parents, it's important to see the progression here in this text. We often focus our attention on verse 7 as parents. You shall teach them diligently. And that is a, a truth, an important truth. But notice again what he says before that. He says, speaking to parents, you need to have your life right, your focus right. God needs to be building your home before you invest in your children. He says, these words shall be on your heart. You, parents, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your strength. Don't demand obedience from your children if you're not giving it to God yourself, is the idea. If you want your kids to be passionate up for the Lord, they need to see it in your life. So moms and dads, future moms and dads, grandparents, aunts and uncles even, are you following God with all your heart? Are you being faithful to seek Him with all of your strength, and then passing that on, passing on the Scriptures to the children. That is how you smooth those arrows. And dads, I have a specific question for you. How skilled of an archer are you? You know, Ephesians 6, 4 says, speaking primarily, firstly, to fathers. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How well equipped are you, men, for this task? You know, I remember when I was shooting at that dangerous picture of the bear, you know, and I was, uh, my shots were being sprayed all over the place. And then there was a guy there who was giving instruction and help. And he came up to me and he, he taught me one simple thing of a technique of put my thumb on my chin. That would help my aim. And the very next shot actually hit the bear. I needed his help to make me shoot better. Fathers, are you seeking help from those more experienced to help you learn how to Raise and shoot your arrow. Is there an older man in your life to help guide you? You single guys, how are you preparing yourself for this? Being an expert at Minecraft or Fortnite or Grand Theft Auto will not make you a good husband or a father. In fact, it will probably do the opposite. Is there an older man in your life Are you building disciplines now to prepare you? It's the same for you single ladies. What are you doing now to prepare you for the potential of training up, straightening a future arrow that God may give you? Now going back to verse 4, Solomon gives the illustration of children as arrows to purposely tell us that our children are intended for something. They're intended to make an impact. Someday your arrow is going to fly. Are you preparing your child for that day? 
Do they know the gospel? Have you been faithful to teach them so they understand the gospel? Whether or not they believe it, that is the Lord's responsibility. But have you been faithful to to teach them, to instruct them? They shouldn't be able, if they leave your home, to recite the gospel. This is by far their greatest need. You have done nothing as a parent if they have not heard the gospel, if they have not seen it lived out in your life. That is by far the most important. How well do they know the book? Do they understand what God has said in His Word? Have you been faithful to repeat? Have you been diligently teaching them? Do they value the church? Do they see it as a privilege? Or is it a place they're just dragged to every Sunday? You know, we used to tell our kids in the morning, hey, we get to go to church today. We wouldn't say, hey, we have to go to church today. Are you teaching your children about marriage? Do they understand its purpose? Do they understand the roles in marriage? Do they know why God wants them to stay pure? By your example and instruction, are you preparing your children to raise a family of their own someday? And do your children understand there's an enemy out there who wants to destroy their souls? Do they know how to combat him with Scripture? With the armor of God? Have you equipped them? How often do you pray for your children and with your children? Another Puritan, Henry Smith, said this, Well does he call children arrows, for if they be well-bred, they shoot at their parents' enemies. And if they be evil-bred, they shoot at their parents. I think he's right. Listen, your, your child provides an opportunity to deal a blow to Satan and his plan. Hone and shape your arrow, so that when you launch your son, when you launch your daughter, you can launch him or her, straight into the heart of the enemy. And I know this is not an easy task. My wife and I were given five arrows, very particularly bent and rugged arrows, if I might add. You know, and that's why we have to rely on God to build our homes. We can't do this on our own. But as you depend on Him, as you're faithful... Again, the focus is faithfulness, not success. We need to be faithful, bringing the Word of God, seeking to live for God, seeking to love Him with all our heart, having a passion for Christ, for His gospel, and to live that out in the home. We just need to be faithful to do that, to bring the Word to our kids and then leave the results up to God. He will equip you for that task if you depend on Him. He has provided many in our lives to help us with that as well. Now, we have seen here that that children are a gift from the Lord in the second stanza. We've seen that children are like arrows, Solomon says. There's a third and last description of children that he gives here, that they are a blessing. Yes, you heard that right. Solomon said they are a blessing. Look at verse 5. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Here we see that to have a a quiver or home full of children is not a burden, but a blessing. Now this psalm is not saying that you need to have children to complete you. This passage is not a command, by the way, as some have mistakenly made it to be. It is not saying you must have as many children as you can. It's not talking about birth control here. It's not saying birth control is a sin. Nor is it telling us how many children we have to have to be godly. In fact, I, I remember in studying this passage, how much time and effort um, theologians, commentators would spend on how many arrows make up a full quiver. Well, let's see, in the ancient Near East, there was 14 arrows, or one guy said 19 arrows. Another guy said, you know, seven arrows. But no one knows for sure, and that's not the point. Solomon is saying here, he doesn't give the size of the quiver, he merely says that it is good when it's full. Whatever the number of arrows in your quiver, the message here is that children are a blessing. Those arrows are a blessing. Or arrow, if you will. Now some of you may be thinking, now, okay, Solomon, what was he smoking here when he wrote this? Children are a blessing? Mine are a challenge. They're a trial. I I feel more unhappy now than before I had kids. Well, my response is if you see your children in that way, you... You, you don't have a right understanding of why God gave them to you. God sees them as a blessing. 
Parenting is not about fixing your kids. You, you realize that, right? It's about fixing you. God's not only interested in effective arrows, but he wants effective archers. Again, an arrow just sits there until it is shot. Again, as, as uh, George Swinnick said, they're bent, they're rugged, they need to be straightened, they need to be shoot, uh, smoothed, they need to be made effective for use. And I think God has much to teach us as parents, more to teach us as parents with the children that he has given Again, as I said earlier, God gave you the children you have intentionally. He's determined that it is your child or your children that are the best and will help you the most to grow closer to Him. And until you embrace that truth, you will not see your children as a blessing and you will not be content with what God has given you. You know, I've been amazed, (coughs) humbled actually, by how God has used my children to expose Some pretty significant sins in my life, particularly sins of anger and impatience, lack of compassion. And it's not been an easy road, but I know the journey also is not done. And I can indeed say with Solomon that children are a blessing, even in the difficulties. Even having to be around them 24-7 right now, as, as many of you are, they are a great blessing. God is using this time, or He can use it, if you will allow to help you and your walk with Christ, to expose issues and um, situations, sins perhaps even in your own heart through the circumstances that he has put you in. They're a great blessing. And part of the blessing is seen here in how Solomon ends this psalm. He says there, look there in verse 5, he says, parents will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies at the gate. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the gate of the city, the, the entrance, that was an important location. That's where business transactions were taking place. That's where the elders, the leaders of the city would congregate each day to, to deal with matters regarding the city, to deal with judicial decisions. Uh, in fact, you remember one example is when Boaz, as he sought to redeem Ruth and to redeem Naomi's property, uh, Ruth's property, he went to the gate of the city, and that's where he made the transaction with the other kinsman redeemer. And that's where the the agreement was carried out. And so the idea here in verse 5 is that if you were to encounter at the city gate someone who was against you, someone who was your enemy, your children, if you've you've, uh, well-trained them, if they've launched them from their own, they would be a formidable ally against that opponent. Spurgeon said this, Nobody cares to meddle with a man who can gather a clan of brave sons about him. And the point is this. The point is that when your children are grown, if they have been trained well, they can be of great benefit to you, even in your later years. So God has provided children as a gift, as your arrows, and as a blessing. And we must rely on God to raise them in our homes. And at the same time, again, remember, leave the outcome to the Lord. It's only by His grace in the end, be faithful to bring them to the Word of God. Be, f- be faithful to bring the Word of God to them. Labor hard, be an example, and then leave the results to Him. To raise your home, you must rely on God. And brothers and spe- sisters, especially parents, don't waste this quarantine. Don't waste it. You've been given an opportunity to spend time with your family. How much of that time are you devoting to their souls? Are you making regular time in the Word with them, in prayer, looking for opportunities to talk about the Lord? Are you teaching them songs about the Lord and singing them together? We had a great time last night in my house with our grandkids, they, uh, singing, teaching them singing songs together with them about the Lord and to the Lord. And we have to remember this as well. It's not just parents that need to be pouring into the next generation, right? Grandparents? other family members, and especially my brothers and sisters in Christ here at Calvary. Let us remember, all of us, our first mission field is the children here. They're our first mission field. They're our most important mission field. So we have to remember, we are all involved in that process. How are you investing in that mission field? How are you investing in the next generation how are you being an example to them how are you pouring into their life how are you helping the families in this church in raising those kids you know 
Who knows what the Lord has in the immediate future? We know at some point we see in the book of Revelation exactly what's going to happen to this world. And just to see the impact of this virus in these days and and read the book of Revelation, as as, as bad or deadly as this virus is, it's nothing compared to what God has in store. Are we preparing our families for that future? And by that I mean, do they understand the gospel? Are you living it out before them? And are you helping them to, to understand the scriptures and even spend some time in that book with them, the book of Revelation? Help them to see what God has coming and why and how they can avoid being a part of that and how they can help others avoid being a part of that. So much more we could see, uh, learn from this psalm, but I want to focus our attention now and just give you a moment to consider the implications. How will you apply this psalm in your life? What I want to do is just take a moment, have you bow your heads with me in prayer, and just have you ponder that question for a moment. Are you relying on God to raise your home? Are you reminding yourself, remembering that God is your provider in life and He's your provider of children. So think now, what's one way you can apply this message and talk to the Lord about that and then I will close us in prayer. Oh Lord, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the wisdom of Solomon and that you had given him and providing us direction understanding and and reminding us the vital importance of relying upon You as we live our lives. Relying upon You, Lord, as we raise our families, as we help others to do so. Lord, we thank You for the fact that You are a good and sovereign God, that You are in control, that we can trust You. And as we seek to be faithful to live before you to to be followers of Christ, to trust and depend on Him alone, to live for Him and proclaim Him, that, Lord, you, you will build our house. You will build our lives. I do pray, Lord, especially for the children. Pray for the children of this church, the families that are a part of this body. I, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen and equip the parents. Lord, help us to equip one another, to come alongside one another in this very challenging and difficult task of, of raising our children in the Lord. But Lord, you have not given us any instruction or command that you will not give us the grace and strength to carry out. And so I thank you for your spirit who empowers us to do that. I pray, Lord, we would be reliant upon him. We would be faithful to bring the word to our kids, to pray for and with them, Lord, to live out the gospel before them. And then, Lord, I pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our children here, of our youth, to the beauty of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.